0: As a minister here to the youth, uh, we are working through the book of Acts in our Wednesday night gatherings, and I had asked the students, I said this last week, I asked the students what passages of Scripture from the book of Acts were were most memorable, of which was uh, the stoning of Stephen, which we studied last week, and Simon the magician. So here we are uh, studying this passage of Scripture uh, regarding Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8. I want to ask you a question as we begin. Uh, do you remember when you learned how to swim? Connie told me this morning that she was returning to swimming. Do you remember when you learned how to swim? Uh, you may have learned so early in life that you don't remember. If you learned as an, as, as an adult, I assume that you do remember. If you don't remember or you haven't learned yourself, maybe some of you haven't learned how to swim, you might have watched a, ch- a child learn how to swim, maybe your own child. Whatever the case, learning to swim involves a number of elements. There's a number of things you have to learn. Uh, some of them include learning how to float, learning how to kick water, maybe holding onto the side of the pool and kicking water, how to exhale or breathe out underwater, getting comfortable putting your head under the water, learning how to crawl, backstroke, front stroke, what we might call freestyle. All these things are involved in learning how to swim. And eventually you learn how to tread water. watering involves kicking your feet and moving your arms in such a way that you're able to keep your head above water. It might be the most challenging thing when you learn how to swim, getting confident to step out of the shallow end of the pool. Of course, these are just the basics. Eventually, you build confidence and you dive in. One thing that's universal in learning to swim is that you always start in the shallow end of the pool. In fact, many of us, um, many of the more modern pools, even have a kind of splash pad uh, area designed for small children or maybe for adults that are just learning to swim. This allows kids to get comfortable with the water before venturing out into deeper waters. When you're learning to swim, the, sh- the shallow water is your friend. Maybe you remember the sensation of, I remember the sensation of, of stepping out towards deeper waters when you're a kid and, and feeling that kind of pull that's pulling you out into those deeper waters and you, you scramble back to the safe zone or to the, the shallow waters. Um, so, you know, this morning's message, of course, is not about swimming. Uh, we're not going to teach how to swim here this morning. Uh, however, I do want to use this idea of learning to swim and the idea of wading in shallow waters as a metaphor for our faith. And so I'm going to build on that metaphor as we work through our passage this morning. How often am I comfortable in the shallow shallow waters of faith? Uh, It's easy for me to stand waist deep in the water. It it requires very little effort, very little work, and it comes at very little cost. Even worse, I I often equate standing in shallow waters as swimming. But splashing around in knee-deep water is not swimming. Swimming happens when I kick away from the bottom. Swimming swimming happens when I can no longer feel the bottom. If I were to ask you to apply this metaphor to your faith, where would you be in the pool? Would you be wading in the shallows or swimming in deep waters? My guess is that you would answer yes to both. There are aspects of your life and your faith where you might praise God for a great victory. evidences that you are swimming in deep waters. Maybe you've seen tremendous growth in your life. Maybe you've stepped out in faith, trusted God, and he's buoyed you up. I trust that all of us have this experience. I know you have this experience. Conversely, there may be evidences that your faith or aspects of your faith are, we might say, knee-deep. The challenge before us this morning is to, is to consider, where am I waiting in the shallow waters of faith? It's my hope that God's spirit might work uniquely in our hearts this very morning through the teaching of his word <clears throat> to enable us to step up, to step out, to empower us, to, to push us out into deep waters of faith. We're going to accomplish this by looking specifically at the life of a magician, Simon the magician. Maybe you've heard him called Simon Magus or Simon the sorcerer. Either way, this morning, this is our thesis, "Through the shallow faith of Simon the magician, we will receive a challenge to step out into the deep waters of faith." That's our thesis this morning. And if you haven't, please open your Bibles up to uh, to, to Acts chapter 8. I didn't get the page number this morning, but I think it's in the low 900s, it's in that area. 916, page 916 in the blue Bible in front of you, if you didn't bring your Bible or you want to look on with us. The story of Simon the Magician is found in verses 9 through 24 of that chapter, chapter 8 of Acts 8. And I've outlined this morning's passage into four sections, and I'm going to give you that outline just up front, and then we'll work through it on the slides. But just so you have it, just put this in your mind. Verses 9 through 11, we're going to see Simon waiting in the shallow waters of self. In verses twelve through thirteen, we're going to see him waiting in the shallow waters of salvation. In verses fourteen through twenty-one, we're going to see him waiting in the shallow waters of the spirit. And finally, in verses twenty-two and through twenty-four, we're going to see Simon waiting in the shallow waters of sin. To the first point, Simon waiting in the shallow waters of self. The story of Simon the Magician is found, of course, within the broader context of Philip's ministry in Acts chapter 8. Philip, like Stephen, who we studied last week, was one of seven men chosen by the church in Jerusalem to help serve tables. He came alongside the apostles and he helped do practical ministry there in the early church. Philip's role in the book of Acts is significant. He is the man God used to spread the gospel into the regions of Samaria, now, this region was about 40 miles north of north-northwest of Jerusalem. I looked that up. It's about here to the grapevine. So that kind of puts it in perspective. That's about here from Samaria. Uh, this region and the people who lived in it had a, a sordid history, you might say. This history will come into play later in our study. But for, for now, it's enough to say that the Jews considered the Samaritans to be outsiders. In Acts chapter 8, verses, eight, verses 5 through 8, we're introduced to the ministry of Philip. If you would, just look at Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 5 there, we'll kind of set up the context for our passage. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. Significant to the message this morning is that Philip, like Stephen, had miraculous gifts. Philip was able to confirm the proclamation of the gospel by casting out unclean spirits and healing the paralyzed and the lame. It's no surprise that as a result, there was, of course, much joy in Samaria, said, in contrast to Philip is a man named Simon. We're introduced to Simon in verse 9. Look at verses 9 through 11. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. Like Philip, the people were amazed by Simon. Simon was amazing because he practiced magic. Now, I think we can relate to this. Uh, names like David Copperfield, Lance Burton, Penn and Teller, these are household names in our day. Maybe you recall the fascination with uh, an illusionist named David Blaine in the 90 s. He had a TV show called Street Magic. It was very popular. More recently, uh, the TV show America's Got Talent has profiled magicians. Oftentimes they win the show. In fact, three times out of like 16 or 17 seasons, they've won the show. And a magician even won the, the championship edition of America's Got Talent. I think his name is Shen Lim. If I have that correct. These modern magicians, however, uh, they're just really uh, carefully crafted illusionists, and they they know how to use sleight of hand well. I think few, if any of them, contain elements of false religion or the occult. And this is, however, the case with Simon. In the ancient world, magic was more in line with what we might call witchcraft or sorcery or the occult. One writer summarizes, Magic was based on the view that human beings, gods, demons, and the visible world are all connected in ways that can be influenced by rituals involving Incantations and the manipulation of objects. Its purpose active forms of magic sought victory in a race or success in sexual liaisons. The offensive use of magic against personal enemies involving curses was feared and often punished. This is the kind of magic that was around in Simon's day. The word magic itself denotes rites ordinarily using incantations designed to influence or control transcendent powers. Words like divination, sorcery, witchcraft, black magic, alchemy, astrology, and things like enchantments, incantations, amulets, charms, and repeated utterances would all be found under the subject of magic. Now, we know, probably know, that the the Mosaic law forbids magic. Deuteronomy chapter 18 provides evidence, quote, there shall be... There shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, which is what a necromancer is. Paul also forbids magic. So the Old Testament uh, forbids magic and the New Testament does too. Uh, In Galatians 5.20, Paul writes, well, he characterizes sorcery as a work of the flesh and he puts that in opposition to the works of the spirit. That's in Galatians 5.20. In addition to practicing magic, Simon apparently felt very highly of himself. Uh, Verse 9 says that he said himself that he was great. And apparently Simon's practice wasn't the only thing in opposition to the Spirit. Simon had a wrong view of himself. He believed his own hype. He was the hero of his own story. And in combination with his magical abilities, was able to convince the people of Samaria that he was something like a god. They said, this man is the power of God that is called great. Or maybe more clear, I like the NIV translation on this one. The man is rightly called the great power of God. They attributed some kind of divinity to him. If Simon stands in contrast to Philip, which I believe he does, Simon's character is not in line with God's servants. Consider what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 about God's servants. And I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling God's servants are not like Simon, speaking highly of themselves. They acknowledge a kind of simplicity. There's no talk about secret knowledge or superior eloquence. God's servants do not claim to be without weakness or fear. They simply claim Jesus Christ and him crucified. In some, God's servants are not proud like Simon was. The Bible is quite clear about pride. It says a lot about pride. Proverbs records the first of seven abominations as haughty eyes. If you don't know what the word haughty means. It's prideful. It's the idea. Prideful eyes. And we're familiar with Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Paul says in Galatians 6, 3, If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And James writes, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It is James, in fact, who explains that humility, it is humility that prepares the soul for salvation. James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and flee from, and he will flee from you, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. One commentator says, As long as Simon believed he was God, or nearly God, he could not come to a proper sense of himself. People must see themselves as lost, weak, and helpless without God before they can be saved. Simon, locked firmly in pride's grip, locked firmly in pride's, pride's grip, excuse me, did not. With both Philip and Simon in view, at this point in the story, if we're following what God is trying to say, we might ask some questions like this. Who are these people going to follow? Are they going to follow Philip, or are they going to follow Simon. Even further, the gospel gospel message has found its way out of Jerusalem and into Samaria. Will it, in fact, make its way to the end of the earth? Could a magician like Simon thwart the plans of God? Well, if Simon was found waiting in the shallow waters of self, that is, he had a wrong view of himself... In verses 9 through 11, and verses 12 through 13, we're going to see that Simon was waiting in the shallow waters of salvation. Turning to verse 12, we read, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Thankfully, the crowds turned to Philip and accepted his message. As the verse suggests, the Samaritans believed the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, the good news, or the gospel, is a message about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus was and is the Son of God. He was sent to this world by God the Father. Although he was without sin, the world did not accept him. John 1, 9-13 says of Jesus, The true light The privilege to become children of God is ours precisely because the world did not receive Jesus. Jesus was executed by the Romans, and in his death, he became our substitute. He died so we can live. He received the punishment that we deserve because of sin. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each and every one of us has, you might say, missed the mark. We fail to live up to the standard of God, yet we know one who has, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only man who defeated death. He was raised to life and never suffered death. He ascended to heavens and sits at this very moment at the right hand of God. It is when we accept this message and believe these things about Jesus and ourselves that we might say with confidence, we believe the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, as the Samaritans did. The Samaritans believed this message, but what of Simon? Verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now this verse gives us a number of, of interesting features about Simon's faith. The first thing we see here is that he had an intellectual faith. It says he believed. Well, To believe implies that he had some level of understanding about the teaching and doctrine of the church generally and about Philip's gospel specifically. As we just reviewed the content of the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, it seems reasonable to believe that Simon's faith involved some logic. It, It was something he had to think about. Therefore, he had an intellectual faith. Secondly, we see that he was baptized. Simon had mental assent to the gospel and even took the first step of obedience as a Christian. He experienced water baptism. Another feature of Simon's faith, he remained in constant association with God's people. You can just say association. It says he continued with Philip. Apparently, Simon was around for more than just Christmas and Easter. He, he wasn't an outlier. He was among the family of God. Quite literally, the text says, he attached himself. Now, I, I do find it interesting that it appears that he attached himself to Philip. And that, I think, will play into the end of the story. But he, he was with God's people. The crowds believed if he had an intellectual faith, if he had a baptized faith, you might say, he was associated with God's people. And then he was also, uh, there was a sense of wonder that existed with Simon the magician. He was a continual eyewitness of supernatural power. God gave Simon the great privilege of seeing signs and great miracles. And the scripture says he was amazed. But interestingly, you notice he was attached to Philip and he was attached, you might say, to the signs. So I I think Luke has maybe given us some clues here regarding what's to come. Verse 13, it reveals that Simon did have an intellectual faith, an external baptism, a constant association with God's people, and a continual eyewitness of supernatural power. And at first glance, it might seem that Simon's faith is firm. Yet, of course, I've shown my cards here to some degree, and I've categorized his faith as shallow, Why? What will become clear as we continue is that for all these features, Simon is still found waiting in the shallows. And we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but one commentator says this, true salvation is not mere profession or ritual act. It is the divine transformation of the soul from love of self to love of God, from love of sin to love of holiness. If you're taking notes, write that down. The divine transformation of the soul. Transformation is key. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If belief, baptism, association, and wonder are not enough to equate to the divine transformation of the soul or as 2 Corinthians says, becoming a new creation, then what is? What was Simon missing? What might I be missing? What might you be missing? Now, drawing back from Simon for a moment, through verse 13, we see that the gospel was given a great victory in Samaria. The Samaritans received Philip's gospel and were baptized. Even a spiritual leader like Simon embraced Philip's message. One thing we must not lose sight of is the gospel victory to the Samaritans. Although we are looking at Simon the Magician specifically, we must keep this story within the context of Philip's gospel message to the Samaritans. As we're discovering, God was doing something amazing in the book of Acts. His gospel was being magnified with a victorious landfall in Samaria. In the foreground is, is Simon the magician, but in the background is the gospel to Samaria. Both of these things are happening in this text. If Stephen was waiting in the shallows, if Simon, excuse me, was waiting in the shallow water of self, he had a wrong view of self, and he had was waiting in the shallow waters of salvation. He had a wrong view of salvation. In verses fourteen through twenty-one, he is waiting in the shallow waters of the Spirit. Now, in verse fourteen, we have some new characters that enter into the drama: Peter and John. Word of Samaritan belief spread to Jerusalem, and the apostles came to aid the reception of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses fourteen through seventeen. To be sure, this is not a common event. In the book of Acts, it is common for the Holy Spirit to come during the act of belief and baptism. This is not normal. So why was the Holy Spirit delayed to the Samaritans? Well, in order to answer this question, we have to kind of draw back a little bit from this text and look at the broader context of the book of Acts and Israel in general, really. Uh, We know that the book of Acts was written by Luke, the book records the initial fulfillment of the great commission of Matthew 28. Final words of Jesus in Matthew 28. Uh, the book demonstrates this, this commission to make disciples and teach people to obey the commands of Jesus. And this understanding shapes the outline of the book, especially when you consider the last words of Jesus before his ascension. His last words are found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says this, But you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. That's our key, ver- key word in the book of Acts to be a witness. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus' last words. Well, this book traces the expansion of the gospel into those regions. What we have in Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 4, is the expansion of the gospel into Samaria. As I've mentioned, Samaria was that region just north of Jerusalem in the time before Jesus, the land of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. You might remember this back from the Old Testament. The land of Jerusalem was, or land of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. The kingdom of the south is commonly called Judah in the Bible, and the kingdom of the north is commonly called Israel. Sometimes, if you're reading your Bible and you're reading through the Old Testament, you're reading about the prophets, and they're talking about Judah, and they're talking about Israel. And you're like, I have no idea what's going on here. That's the distinction. They're talking about Israel. They're talking about the northern kingdom. They're talking about Judah. They're talking about the southern kingdom. That might be how Well, some 700 years before the New Testament, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. Maybe you remember a guy named Sennacherib. Uh, he, He came and he destroyed the northern kingdom. When the Assyrians took control of that region, they deported most of the Jews and repopulated the region with Gentile peoples. No surprise, the Gentiles brought their religion into the land of Israel and over time, those foreign people intermarried with the Jews that still remained. There were some Jews that were still there. And so they intermarried with those Jews. Thus, the region of Samaria was a region filled with a distinct people practicing a distinct religion. Now, in the days closer to the life of Jesus, the region was conquered by the Greeks, and therefore. Uh, highly influenced by Greek culture, and that kind of only, you know, added more pain to the area, so to speak. Herod the Great eventually made Samaria one of the chief cities in his territory. All this is to say that by the time Jesus and the New Testament, the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews was, you might say, strained, a little bit of an understatement. It was certainly a strained relationship. You might have heard how the Jews would bypass the region of Samaria when traveling north of Jerusalem to Galilee. I guess that's kind of like going to Tehachapi to go to the grapevine. I don't know if that's something, but uh, something like that. They, They went around the region. Now, it's noteworthy that Jesus didn't play into this, and we know that. He had no part in this injustice. To the shock of the first century Jews, Jesus not only traveled through Samaria, but treated the Samaritans no different than the Jews. Luke seems to draw this out in the life of Jesus more than some of the other gospel writers. He he tends to, Luke in his gospel, he he kind of focuses on the Samaritans maybe more than others in their gospels. Uh, He records Jesus' rebuke of his disciples for their hostility toward the Samaritans. Interesting, that's in Luke chapter 9. John was one of those ones that was rebuking those Samaritans. And here we see him going to Samaria, laying hands, uh, and the Holy Spirit coming on the Samaritans. Interesting turn of events. Uh, Luke records Jesus healing a a Samaritan leper. He records the honoring of a Samaritan for his neighborliness. You probably remember the parable of the good Samaritan. And he also praises Jesus, he, he, he writes about the praise Jesus gives a Samaritan for his gratitude in Luke chapter 17. It seems Jesus had a very different perspective on the Samaritan people. Now moving our focus back to Acts, chapters 1 through 7 records the witness of the gospel to the Jews through Peter. Peter. Chapters eight through twelve records the witness of the gospel to the Samaritans through Philip, and chapters thirteen through twenty-eight records the witness of the gospel to the Gentiles through Paul. The words of Jesus again, Acts chapter one verse eight: "But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, and in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth." This is what the the, the book of Acts is doing. So here we are this morning in the center of God's work through Philip to bring the gospel to the Samaritans. So let me remind you again our question. Why did God delay, all that was said to get at this point, why did God delay the coming of the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans? Well, I believe the arrival of Peter and John from Jerusalem gives us the answer. With the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, both would have been prone to reject the faith testimony of the other. Having Peter and John, the apostles, come from Jerusalem and affirm the Samaritan believers by laying hands on them and having them receive the Holy Spirit would have relieved at least some of the animosity. Therefore, the delay of the Holy Spirit finds its explanation in the fact that this is the first significant extension of salvation outside of Jerusalem. The apostles are needed to confirm Philip's work and assure all that the gospel witness is indeed moving, as Jesus said, from Jerusalem to Samaria, to Judea and Samaria, and then it will eventually move to the end of the earth. So, verse 18. Returning to Simon in verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. It appears there was some kind of visual manifestation of the receiving of the Holy Spirit. This impressed Simon such that he offered to purchase the secret to such powers. This request reveals that Simon, was, uh, that Simon saw commercial opportunities where he should have seen spiritual realities. Simon wanted a part in wowing the people as Philip, and now Peter and John, were doing. And so this, this request is much more in line with a professional magician than a true convert. As magicians might exchange incantations and formulas in a guild, Simon was hoping to purchase a new spell. Now, as you might expect, what comes next is a pretty stern rebuke. Look at verses 20 and 21. But Peter said to him, "'May your silver perish with you, "'because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. "'You have neither part nor lot in this matter.'" for your heart is not right before God may your silver perish with you I think this is akin to the language of a curse is what he's saying these words are equally a prediction and a condemnation Simon's request revealed that he was filled with greed because already given us a number of clues about the damaging effects of greed in this very book we're reminded of the outcome of Judas in Acts chapter 1, verse 18. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. This was the, where the greed of Judas led him. Luke also recounts the story of Ananias and Sapphira. The couple fell dead because of their greedy actions. Therefore, Simon seems to stand here in line, I believe, with Judas and Ananias and Sapphira. Simon failed to recognize that gifts of God cannot be purchased and are given from God. God's gifts are in God's control. Again, Simon was seeing the entire situation through the eyes of a magician. Finally, Peter says Simon's heart was not right before God. Simon had a defective faith. He was a spurious convert. He had a faith that didn't save. He was a clever deceiver. He was found as we've said, waiting in the shadow wa- shallow waters of self-deception. In effect, his heart was not in a straight line before God. Finally, in verses 22 through 24, we will see that Simon was waiting in the shallow waters of sin. Peter presses further in verses 22 and 23. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, And pray to the end that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. The gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Peter here gives two commands. Two commands here, two imperatives in the text. Repent and pray. And the wickedness that Simon must repent from is captured with the phrase, the intent of your heart. Peter is calling for heart change in Simon. Verse 23 gives us those details about Simon's condition. He was in the gall of bitterness, which equals being full of poison. Other translations have poisoned by bitterness, state of bitter envy, full of bitterness, and bitterly envious. To be in the gall of bitterness is to experience the bitter results of a sinful attitude. Combining this with the curse language found in verse 20, it's indeed a condition that's subject to the wrath of God. Peter adds that Simon is also in the bond of iniquity. He is bound in unrighteousness or bound by unrighteousness, bound by wickedness, captive to sin or in bondage to sin. If we were to import Paul's words from Romans, he is a slave to sin. Now, recall Simon's faith. He had an intellectual faith. He had a baptized faith. He had association. And he had wonder. Yet he was still manifesting the characteristics of an unregenerate nature, the poisonous self-seeking, superstitious root had not been eradicated from his heart. His soul was still held fast by the fetters of unrighteousness. He had not experienced that divine transformation of the soul. Now, we don't have to wonder how, how Simon might have responded to this because we're told how he responded. We're given his response in verse 24. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon you. Excuse me, may come upon me. I suppose what we believe about Simon's faith might stand or fall on how we interpret this verse. Does this verse indicate that Simon repented? Now, you know where I'm at. Essentially, this whole message is founded on what I believe about this verse, that he wasn't, in fact, repentant. Although his response might convey some remorse, I would not characterize it as reflecting a turn of will that marks true repentance. For me, Simon's response feels someone like Judas's response in Matthew 27. Remember, I, remember I, I highlighted Judas and his greed earlier. Listen to the response in Matthew 27 from Judas. Then, then when Judas, his betrayer, Jesus' his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I think it's interesting there, it says he changed his mind. We, we oftentimes think of repentance as a change of mind. It says Judas changed his mind. He brought back the money. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Maybe less known or a little bit more obscure is Esau. Hebrews chapter 12 makes a very interesting connection between bitterness and unbelief. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many have defiled, become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now no, notice Esau here, for, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. There's remorse. In the case of Judas and Esau, there was remorse over sin. Yet something was missing. Something wasn't there. And it's my belief that Simon was in line with these men. He was another one of those, you might say. Now, you recall Peter commanded Simon to repent and to pray. To repent and to pray. It seems he was not even able to obey the command to pray. So he simply asks Peter to pray for him. He can't even pray himself. Pray for me that this doesn't happen to me. There's fear, but there's no action. It may have been that Simon was so bound to unrighteousness that he was unable to see, to hear, to understand that salvation wasn't some magical incantation. It wasn't just some spell some incandation that an apostle was going to do to save him. He needed to do some heart work. Simon needed to repent. In the end, Simon himself doesn't pray. He doesn't repent. And as Judas and Esau before him, as I've argued, he was only frightened by the consequences In some, his heart was unchanged, his sin chains were unbroken, his tendencies were untouched, and his evil influence was unaltered. What kept Simon in the shallow end? What kept him in the shallow end? What prevented him from venturing into the deep waters of faith? Well, I believe the question, the answer to this question, is found in Peter's words in verse 22. We've already alluded to it. In a word, it's repentance. Repentance. I think Wayne Grudem's definition of repentance is easy enough to grasp. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin. We've saw that, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. It's two elements. It's not just remorse over sin, but it's that idea of walking in obedience as well. Even simpler, we might say repentance is a turning away from evil and a turning towards God. And repentance is an essential part of the gospel proclamation. Consider just a couple passages leading up to this. Acts chapter 2, following Pentecost, Jesus, uh, Peter's sermon when the people hearing his sermon turned to him and asked what do we do peter says repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out later paul acts chapter 17 when paul is in on mars hill or the areopagus in athens when speaking to the greek philosophers of his day in acts chapter 17 verse 30 he says the times of ignorance god overlooked But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands all people everywhere to repent. The gospel proclamation involves all those details about Jesus, all the things we talked to before, who he was, who we are, communicating all of that, his penal substitutionary atonement, but it also involves a call of repentance. It has to be there. Otherwise, it's not a full gospel message. Jesus himself required people to turn from their sin before they could follow him. You remember the rich young ruler, an interesting passage of scripture, a man who thought very highly of himself. The ruler asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, you believe this? He said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said, this is, what, this is what's so amazing about Jesus. Jesus puts his finger right on it. He knows exactly what is needed in that man's life. He knows exactly what he has to repent of. And so he says, he puts his finger right on it. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Wow. An opportunity to repent. What happens? But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. He had belief. He knew who Jesus was. I'm sure he saw the miracles, but it was that, that thing in his life that's what he needed to repent of. In contrast to the rich young ruler, Luke 19, the next chapter, a rich tax collector named Zacchaeus comes to faith. His, his uh, coming to faith is very much different. He does come to faith. And what does Zacchaeus do? Well, he expresses his repentance by giving half his goods to the poor. He gives half of his goods to the poor, and he restores those whom he, he, was, he defrauded fourfold. Fourfold. That's repentance. The, the Jewish man was not able to sell all of his possessions, and the tax collector sold everything and gave to the poor. That's a picture of repentance. Maybe you remember the, the woman at the well when Jesus talked to her. Go tell me, you know, go, let's go see your husband. He knew right what it was. He put his finger right on it. Maybe you remember Nicodemus in, in uh, John 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Nicodemus, that whomever believes, whoa, whomever? You mean not just us? No, whomever believes will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus put his finger right on it. He knew exactly what Nicodemus needed to repent of to be born again. Repentance is a part of the gospel proclamation. Acts makes it clear, and in the life of Jesus, we saw it. Now, shifting our focus back to Simon, I believe this is the issue at hand. Simon had belief. He had baptism. He had association. He had wonder, but he lacked repentance. His faith was knee-deep, and so his life lacked depth. Now, I told you this morning that through the shallow faith of Simon the magician, we would receive a challenge to step out into the deep waters of faith. That was the challenge I introduced to you this morning. So here's our challenge. What is keeping you and me, what is keeping us from stepping out into the deep waters of faith? In Simon's case, it was an issue of salvation. I believe that's true. It was an issue of salvation in his case. For some of us, that might be the issue. You've been splashing around for some time in the shallow end. And this, this morning, Christ might be calling you to step out into deep waters, as Hebrews 12, 1 says, to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before you, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. Christ may be calling you to put away your sin, to repent and to look to him the founder and perfecter of the faith. For others, maybe it's not a salvation issue. I trust that for most of us it's not, because I believe us most, mostly to be believers here this morning. Maybe you've been in those deep waters of faith. You've experienced it. But lately, maybe you've found yourself spending too much time in the shallow waters of faith. How can I encourage you to step out? Maybe that means putting to death a certain sin. Maybe that's what that means. Maybe it means challenging you to think deeply about God, to wrestle with something, to think deeply about God. I just thought of it. Here's a way to wrestle deeply with God. Engage with something like this. Challenge yourself. It might mean taking each time, this is very simple, just to consider what you're thankful for. The Bible says that we're to rejoice always. I don't know about you, but just the simple exercise of waking up in the morning and just putting 10 things that I'm thankful for my goodness, what relief comes from that. What are you thankful for? Maybe that's what it means in your life to step out into deep waters, is just to give thanks. What have you done for me today, Lord? Maybe it's to remind you again that our circumstances are not outside the loving hands of our great God and Savior. He has us in his hands. I pray that God's spirit, there's no way for me to engage in each one, each thing, but I just, I pray God's spirit would reveal to us, reveal to you what might be keeping you in the shallow end of the pool. There's one verse yet to read and we're nearing completion here. One last verse I saved. Verse 25, it is a part of our text this morning. Verse 25 says this, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. It's this final verse In this final verse, the text, again, telescopes away from Simon and gives us a broader picture of Philip's gospel work among the Samaritans. While Simon and Philip may have been vying for the crowd, so to speak, Philip for God and Simon for Satan, the gospel was unstoppable. It was absolutely unstoppable. The unstoppable nature of the gospel was magnified, again, through its victorious landfall in Samaria. And so I'm happy to end this this, uh, service with this verse this morning. On the surface, it might seem somewhat insignificant, but I believe this is an encouragement for us, and there is an encouragement for us here in this verse. God's gospel plan cannot be stopped. The gospel of God found victory in Jerusalem. It found victory in Judea and Samaria, and as we would see if we continued studying, it is going to find victory to the end of the earth. God was not finished in Acts 8, and he's not finished with you and me. The gospel made it all the way here, and it continues to go forward. You think about, it's a, I guess, a good segue to next next week's service and our missions conference. Like Tom was uh, challenging us this morning with being a missionary. Is God done doing something in the world He is not done. His gospel was going forward here and it's continuing to go forward and it will continue to go forward. So I believe this final verse gives us a peculiar confidence, the kind of confidence that I hope will enable each and every one of us to step out into the deep waters of faith. Amen? Let's go ahead and pray. Actually, Psalm 139 comes to mind. Maybe we'll use that this morning as our final prayer. Oh, Lord, you have searched us and you know us. You know when we sit down and when we rise up. You discern our thoughts from afar. You search out our path and are lying down. You are acquainted with all of our ways Even before a word is on our tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem us in behind and before and lay your hand upon us. Such knowledge is certainly too wonderful for us, it is high. We cannot attain it. Search us, O God, and know our heart. Try us, know our thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.